Hello and welcome to the Word Life podcast. It's great to have you with us. This week we're focusing on the Reformation and Sharon James is showing us how the power of the gospel was rediscovered in the 16th century. I hope the Lord warms your heart as you hear how these wonderful truths were understood and fought for and delighted in. Let's listen together. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the final of our four sessions on the Reformation, God's people. Of course, in our first three sessions, there's been plenty to celebrate. We've seen that access to Scripture was the key that unlocked the rediscovery of the Gospel. We've seen how Martin Luther discovered for himself the joy of justification We've seen that John Calvin demonstrated that the ultimate cause and end of all things, including the gospel, is the glory of God. And that's where many studies on the Reformation stop. And in our breathtakingly individualistic culture, once we've grasped the glory of the gospel, we're often tempted to say, I've got it, I'm saved. But of course, when we're saved, we're not only united with Christ the head, we're also united with his body, the church. And the question then has to be asked, what is the church? And more precisely, who belongs to the church? Is it everybody born into a territory, or is it those who repent and believe? Is the church a territorial body? or a gathered congregation? And who should decide what goes on in church? Does the civil magistrate have a role? Should religious orthodoxy be enforced in society? Should the state punish heresy? Those questions cause bitter division right through the Reformation. And in this final session, we're going to look first how these questions played out in the Swiss city of Zurich. Secondly, we'll look at the so-called spread of Anabaptism. We'll also look at the fierce opposition that it provoked, and to understand that opposition, we'll remind ourselves of why the magisterial reformers, such as Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, remained convinced of the union of church and state. Then we'll go a bit further in understanding that opposition by looking at the vast variety of views collectively condemned as Anabaptist. Some were violent, some were pacifist, some were bizarre, some were heretical, some were biblical. But according to the one common denominator of rejecting the union of church and state, all of them tended to be thrown into the same basket. And finally, we'll look at the legacy of the radical reformers. Persecuted in their own day, they're still routinely vilified, and yet their convictions about a gathered church of believers and a freedom of conscience are now widely embraced. So the first heading, Conflict at Zurich. Among the many colourful and dynamic figures of the Reformation, Ulrich Zwingli stands out. He was born in the same year as Martin Luther, 1484, but he was born in Switzerland, not Germany. And like Luther, as a young Roman Catholic priest, Zwingli studied the original Greek New Testament in depth, and he was so enthusiastic that he memorized all of the epistles in the original Greek. 
And like Luther, Zwingli came to a profound experience of salvation by grace. Now, on his 35th birthday, on the 1st of January, 1519, he was appointed as priest and preacher at the great minster of Zurich. And he stunned his congregation when instead of turning to the normal reading for the day in the prayer book, he opened his Bible at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and he announced to them that he was going to preach systematically through the whole New Testament. And he did that. And as he did so, he preached boldly against those elements in the Roman Catholic Church that he found to be in contradiction to the Word of God. And his congregation in Zurich also began comparing biblical teaching with the practices of the Roman Church and finding tradition wanting. So it was on a Friday evening during Lent, 1522, that a leading Zurich citizen, he was a publisher, invited some friends around for supper, including Zwingli, and he served sausage. And that sausage supper was an act of revolution because it defied the Roman Catholic tradition that meat should not be eaten during Lent on Fridays. Now, shortly after that, Zwingli preached a sermon that had the title On the Choice and Freedom of Food. And he argued that having meat during, banning meat during Lent was a purely human invention. And he described all such man-made traditions as, quote, spots on the face of Christ, unseemly things arising from the foulness of human commands. And prohibiting meat during Lent was just one of many human innovations, such as relics, indulgences, and images, which could not be found in Scripture. Now, at this point, Zurich was ruled by a 24-member council, and later that year, the city council of Zurich decided to break free of Catholic rule, and by this time, Zwingli had attracted a very keen group of young scholars around him who, like him, believed that the Bible should be the only authority for doctrine and church practice. Now, one of the leading figures in this group was a young scholar called Conrad Grable. He was actually one of the sons of a leading council member in Zurich. Others in the group included his friends, such as Felix Mance, George Blaurock, who we'll come back to. Now, soon, controversy was raging in Zurich about how far and how fast reform should proceed. In October 1523, at a public debate in Zurich, Zwingli agreed that the city council should determine whether or not images should be retained in churches and for how long the mass, in its old form, should be retained, the city council. Now, that was a climb down. Back in 1520, Zwingli had stated that the civil authority had no place determining what went on in church. Now, three years later, he had become convinced that the only way Reformation would take root in Zurich was if the civil magistrates enforced it. And so for pragmatic reasons, he accepted that fully biblical reform would have to wait until the council pushed it through. Now, Zwingli, in the eyes of Grable and his friends, was failing to operate on the principle of sola scriptura, scripture alone as the final authority. 
The authority of the word of God, in their view, had been sacrificed on the altar of human expediency. Should the civil magistrate determine what goes on in church? Zwingli's answer was yes. Conrad Grable and his friends said no. And their rejection of the decision to allow the council to set the pace of reform was a key moment in the history of the free churches. They wanted a free church in the sense of being controlled by sola scriptura, not scripture plus tradition or scripture plus what the magistrate says. The phrase free church simply means free from state control. But moving on to the second question, who belongs to the church? As Conrad Grable and his friends studied the scripture, they became convinced that the church is made up of those who profess repentance and faith. And they argued that infants cannot do either of those two things. So in early January 1525, Conrad's wife, Barbara, had a baby girl. And Conrad and Barbara did not take Rachel, baby Rachel, to be christened. And this was a crime. Infant baptism at that time was not just a religious practice. It was a civil obligation. It marked membership not just of the church, but of the state. And the council demanded an explanation. And then the council set up a debate on the matter on the 17th of January, 1525. Now... Conrad Grable and his friends remembered that in their early acquaintance with Zwingli, he had examined scripture and admitted that there is no example of an infant being baptized. At that time, he had written these words, quote, Nothing grieves me more than at the present I have to baptize children, for I know it ought not to be done. If we were to baptize as Christ instituted it, Then we would not baptize any person until he reached the age of discretion, for I find it nowhere written that infant baptism is to be practiced. But they also remember that Zwingli had gone on to write, If, however, I were to terminate the practice of infant baptism, then I fear that I would lose my position. One must practice infant baptism so as not to offend our fellow men. So for Zwingli, expediency had triumphed over sola scriptura. And at the public debate in 1525, the council ruled that anyone who failed to present their babies for baptism within eight days of birth should be expelled from the city. And Zwingli supported that ruling. A few days later, a group of believers met one evening in the home of Felix Mance, and they took a momentous step. They each openly confessed their personal repentance and belief in Christ. Then Conrad Grable baptized George Blaurock, who was a converted Roman Catholic priest, and then Blaurock baptized the others, and each regarded this as their first and true baptism. They formed a congregation of those who had then become Christians through repentance belief, and baptism. So that question, who belongs to the church? Grable and his group of friends said that a church is a fellowship of believers, and they wanted a free church, not just in the sense of being free of state control, but free in the sense of being based on voluntary membership, not 
being coerced to be there by the magistrate. Now, in subsequent days, this little group was tireless in going house to house, evangelizing, witnessing, and baptizing converts. Some of them moved from Zurich to the nearby village of Zollikon, and a believing congregation was formed there in the late January of 1525. And then, in the April of that year, there seems to have been a revival in the next-door village of St. Galen, where Grable baptized about 500 people in the Sitar River. Grable then went back to his hometown of Grunningen, and for four months he preached, went door-to-door, witnessed, and here it was that he was arrested and accused of sedition. Blaurock likewise was seized. Mance was captured a short time later. They and a large number of others who had been baptized were imprisoned in Zurich. Now, by this time, Zurich Council had resurrected an ancient accusation which had been used of dissenting believers through the centuries, and they called Grable, Mance, and their associates Anabaptists or Rebaptists because they argued that to conduct any baptism other than infant baptism was sedition and treason. And that is because it challenged the glue which fixed society together. Now, Grable and his friends never accepted that label of Anabaptists. They simply called themselves Christians or brethren or brothers and sisters. But the council now pronounced that any who practiced what they called Anabaptism should recant and torture could be used to to secure that recantation. If they did not recant, if they were citizens of Zurich, they could be killed, and if they were not citizens, they could be banished. Zwingli fully endorsed that ruling. In 1525, an advocate of believers' baptism called Balthasar Hubmeyer fled to Zurich from a Roman Catholic territory. He had the previous year written a powerful plea for religious toleration with the title Concerning Heretics and Those Who Burn Them. And in this book, he argued, quote, now it is apparent to anyone, even the blind, that the law which demands the burning of heretics is an invention of the devil. He was arrested. And the Zurich magistrates ordered that he should be tortured to force him to recant. Zwingli commented with satisfaction on the success of this, writing, quote, He repeated the retraction three times when stretched on the rack, bewailing his misery, end quote. Of course, it was a forced recantation which Hubmeyer bitterly regretted, and he quickly returned to preaching the need for repentance and baptism. And between 1526 and 1527, over in present-day Slovakia, Moravia, he conducted a preaching visitation ministry which was spectacularly successful. There was an extraordinary movement of the Spirit, and about 6,000 professed repentance and were baptized, including leading members of the nobility. But when recaptured by imperial forces, Roman Catholic imperial forces, Hubmeyer was taken to Vienna. He was imprisoned, he was tortured, and he was burned at the stake, and his wife was drowned. Back to Zurich. On the January 5th, 1527, Felix Mance was sentenced by the Zurich authorities to be bound and thrown into the river Limat. While being taken to his death, he sang praises to God and preached to those who had gathered to watch his death. His brother and mother stood on the shore, urging him to be steadfast. Zwingli watched as his former friend and former follower was killed, and his comment? 
Let him who talks about going under baptism go under, be drowned. George Blarock was not a citizen of Zurich, so he was stripped, given a brutal beating, and expelled from the city. And by this time, Conrad Grable had died of the plague. So we look at the second heading now, the rise and spread of Anabaptism, so-called. On the 24th of February, 1527, a group of the brethren met in the south German town of Schleppheim, and they adopted seven articles of brotherly union. Now, this was not a full confession of faith. It was just a list of the distinctives which marked them out from other believers at the time, and it organized them into a believer's church or a gathered church. And it affirmed that magistrates are ordained for the punishment of evildoers, including capital punishment, but within the church, the ultimate punishment is excommunication. And magistrates are not entitled to use the death penalty for spiritual offenses. The Bible, not the civil magistrate, must order church practice. And it affirmed that membership of the church is for professing believers, not everybody in a territory. And this is the gathered church principle. The biblical order, they believed, was repentance and faith followed by baptism and church membership. Now, one of the authors of the confession was a converted Roman Catholic prior named Michael Sattler. After converting to Protestantism, he had married Margarita, who had been a member of a Catholic lay order. Catherine Sorry, Margarita and Michael were baptized as believers in May 1527, but then they were captured by the Catholic authorities, along with nine other men and eight women. Michael's sentence was shocking. The authorities ruled, quote, he shall be committed to the hangman who shall take him to the square and then first cut out his tongue, then chain him to a wagon, tear his body twice with hot tongs there and five more times before the gate, and then burn his body to powder. Sattler died bravely, praying for his persecutors, and eight days later, his wife, Margarita, was drowned. So those who joined a believer's church could expect to be hunted down and persecuted. And reacting against that coercion, many of them adopted an ethic of non-resistance. They believed that the Sermon on the Mount meant that believers could not take up arms. And in the context of the time, where magistrates had to be willing to engage in torture, including in the compulsion of religion, they reacted by saying that true believers should not serve as magistrates. Now, the evangelical Anabaptist movement spread rapidly from 1527 onwards, not only in Switzerland, but also through South Germany, up through Austria, Eastern Europe, and the Low Countries. Probably that map is not very clear at the back, but the pale purple area marks the Holy Roman Empire, and the area that's marked green is marking the main areas of Anabaptist diffusion. But throughout that whole region, Catholic, Lutheran, and Zwinglian authorities all tried to stamp out that movement by force. Magistrates in both Protestant and Catholic areas forcibly christened children against their parents' wishes. In 1529, the Diet or Parliament at Svea was convened, which confirmed the death sentence for all Anabaptists throughout the Holy Roman Empire, ordering that every Anabaptist and rebaptized person of either sex should be put to death by fire, sword, or some other way. And by 1535, just six, some six years later, over 5,000 believers had been killed. 
Now, the authorities actually found that Anabaptists weren't deterred by torture or death. Their resilience and joy in the face of brutality served only to win more recruits to the cause. And when it was obvious that individual trials and sentences just were inadequate to stop the flow of conversions, the authorities resorted to the desperate expedient of sending out companies of armed executioners and mounted soldiers to hunt down Anabaptists and kill them on the spot, singly or en masse, without trial or sentence. So why? Why did the mainstream reformers unite with Catholics to insist that those who advocated a gathered church should be stamped out by force? We're going to move now to the third heading, the magisterial reformers endorse sacralism. The so-called magisterial reformers, such as Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, never broke away from the concept of the union of church and state because they believed that anything else would pose a dangerous threat to the stability of the state. And they believed that it's the duty of the civil magistrate to enforce true religion. Now let's look at Martin Luther. Actually, during Martin Luther's heady early days as a rebel against Rome, when you read his writings, he questioned whether force should be used to enforce faith. But later on he came up against the harsh reality of his own situation. He knew that he would only survive with the protection of his local prince, and increasingly he turned to the princes, the rulers, to both implement and shelter the Reformation. And he later proved unyielding in his demand that the magistrate should enforce religious uniformity. And his justification was always based on the Old Testament identification of God's people with the nation. If you were here on session two, you may remember me mentioning Philip of Hesse. He was the prince whose bigamous marriage Luther endorsed. Now, Philip of Hesse asked Luther whether it was really necessary to put Anabaptists to death. He didn't like that. He really didn't like that policy. Now, Luther wrote to Philip, quote, Princes and civil authorities have the power and the duty to abolish unlawful cults and to establish orthodox teaching and worship. Concerning this point, Leviticus applies, he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, let him be put to death. Princes must not only protect the goods and the physical being of their subjects, but their most essential function is to promote the honor of God to repress repress blasphemy and idolatry. That is why in the Old Testament, kings put false prophets to death. Luther also believed that it was the magistrate's duty to control who was ordained to the ministry. He wrote, quote, If anyone wants to preach, let him exhibit the call or commission, i.e. from the magistrate, or let him keep his mouth shut. If he refuses this, then let the magistrate consign the scoundrel into the hands of his proper master, whose name is Master Hans, a euphemism for the hangman. And what about the question, who belongs to the church? Well, like Swingley, early in his reforming days, Luther had dabbled with the desirability of the gathered church. And in 1526, he wrote, quote, Those who seriously want to be Christians and want to confess to the gospel should have their names inscribed in a book and assemble in a house by themselves for the purposes of prayer, reading of scripture, administration of baptism, reception of the sacraments, but I do not as yet have the people for it. 
Also like Zwingli, Luther early admitted doubts about infant baptism, writing, quote, there is not sufficient evidence from scripture that would justify one in beginning infant baptism at the time of the early Christians, end quote. But then, failing to find grounds in scripture, he fell back on church history. Quote, in our time, no one may venture with a good conscience to reject or abandon infant baptism, which has so long been practiced which has so long been practiced, so much for sola scriptura. In this case, he was falling back on tradition. And later, Luther was virulent in his criticism of any who supported a gathered church of believers, and he wrote, Conventicles, private meetings for religious devotion, are in no cases to be tolerated. They're the thieves and murderers of whom Christ spoke in John 10.8, people who invade another person's parish. They must neither be tolerated or listened to, even if they seek to preach the pure gospel. And Luther condemned all Anabaptists as corner preachers, infiltrators, rabble preachers, messengers of the devil. And the word he most often used was shawarma, conjuring up the image of mad buzzing bees. In the preface to his commentary on the Galatians, he wrote, For leaving aside the abominations of the Pope, whoever heard of such an outbreak of monsters as we see today in the Anabaptists? Truly in them, Satan is stirring up his own everywhere with frightful commotions. Well, much more briefly, what about Calvin? Calvin believed that the magistrate is appointed by God to ensure that all of the Ten Commandments are obeyed. Magistrates were to use both torture and the death penalty to enforce orthodoxy. Now, admiring biographers tend to airbrush out the more disturbing elements of his correspondence. A letter to his friend William Farrell written in 1555 about the arrest and torture of some of his opponents is particularly chilling. Quote, Concerning the two brothers, assuredly I am convinced that not without the judgment of God they suffered a long torture under the hand of the executioner. Now those who are kept in fetters have pretty clearly revealed their misdeeds. Before two days we shall see, I hope, what the rack will wring from them. And he wrote to his friend Madame de Caney about one heretic. Knowing the man he was, I could have wished he were rotting in some ditch. I assure you, madam, that had he not so soon escaped, I should have done my best to bring him to the stake. So Calvin believed in religious coercion. And it's sad that his wonderful, wonderful writings, which I love, are marred by the most vile invective against those he calls collectively Anabaptists. He calls them all collectively, mad beasts, frantic spirits, and he speaks of their mad ravings, and he condemns them for raging against God's institutions. And ever since then, admirers of Calvin have tended to use that word Anabaptist as a catch-all smear word. And through the century following 1525, there was one thing on which Lutherans, Reformed, and Catholics all agreed to preserve societal stability, all infants should be baptised. When some believers refused to baptize their children, worse practiced what was regarded as rebaptism and gathered in separate religious assemblies, this was regarded as a threat to the stability and unity of society. And worse, when those believers also denied that the civil magistrate had the duty to enforce true religion, it was assumed wrongly that they denied that the civil magistrate had any power at all. This was regarded not only as heresy, but treason. And of course, treason should be punished by death, enforced by the civil authorities. 
And that accusation of treason became even more charged when some of the Anabaptists adopted pacifist views. They refused to take up the sword even in self-defense, but the Turks were literally at the gates of Europe. The thought of large sections of the population refusing to take up arms against them was too shocking for the authorities to contemplate. Now, that all partly explains the hostility towards rebaptized believers, but there's more. We need to note that a vast spectrum of ideas went under the label in Anabaptist. It was like a bucket into which to throw every non-conforming religious minority from the most pious and sincere to the most profane and mischievous. One could draw a parallel with the current smear words extremist and fundamentalist. Those words are used to condemn, on the one hand, a violent Islamist terrorist, but equally a saintly 70-year-old Sunday school teacher who believes in creation. They're all fundamentalists, extremists. And so, back to Europe in the 16th century, a wide variety of individuals and groups questioned infant baptism, and we don't have time to comment on all of them, but I want to note a couple of major groupings, very different from the Zurich Brethren that we looked at at the beginning, and very different from each other. On the one hand, there were those that one could categorize as rationalists. Now, remember that Europe is just emerging from the Renaissance, During the Renaissance, people were called away from a reliance on authorities, their tradition, their challenge to go back to the original sources. And going back to the original New Testament sources, without the filter of church history and tradition, many scholars began to question infant baptism. But many of the rationalist scholars were accomplished humanist and classical scholars. Taking reason as their chief authority, they also began to question other things, some of them ended up holding anti-Trinitarian views. This group included people like Michael Savitas, who we looked at yesterday, the anti-Trinitarian burned at the stake in Geneva. Now, many rationalists, including some highly educated humanist scholars with unorthodox beliefs, were classed as Anabaptists simply because, among other things, they questioned infant baptism. And that led to guilt by association for everyone else who questioned infant baptism as well. But at the other end of the spectrum, there were those who we could call the inspirationists. Now, these were enthusiasts, full of zeal for reform, not willing to wait for others to catch up. And some of these tended to claim direct Holy Spirit inspiration. The Lord told me that, X, Y, and Z. Back in 1521, when Luther had been imprisoned in the Wartburg, we looked at this in session two, he was disturbed by the reports of some enthusiasts back in Wittenberg who were agitating for immediate reform. They wanted immediate removal of images from churches, immediate reform in liturgy and practice, and two of the leaders of that enthusiastic movement were called Thomas Storch and Thomas Munster, and they were nicknamed the Zwickau Prophets. Now, Thomas Munster would shortly afterwards be caught up in the widespread German peasant rebellions of 1525, He was captured, tortured, and executed. But by then, Luther had reacted with almost incandescent horror to the peasants' revolt. And after this, he always associated rebellion with Anabaptism. And there's a double irony here. 
First off, Thomas Munzer never, never baptised believers. And second off, his taking up of arms was in direct contrast to the pacifist convictions of many other Anabaptists. Now, famously, some inspirationists became taken up with the expectation of the immediate return of Christ. And they even took violent steps to inaugurate that return. And among them were a group of desperate men who escaped persecution in the Low Countries and attempted to set up the so-called Kingdom of God in the city of Munster in North Germany in 1534. They founded a kind of socialist state, and they called it the New Jerusalem. And all manner of shocking things happened, which actually gripped the collective attention of Europe like a running soap opera. The town was captured in 1535 by an alliance of Catholic and Lutheran forces. The leaders were tortured to death, and their corpses were exhibited in metal baskets. You can still go to Munster today and see those baskets hanging from the Tower of St. Lambert's. And this tragic drama was used for many, many decades, if not centuries, to blacken the name of Anabaptists. But now let's take a brief look at some of those labelled Anabaptists who were neither rationalists nor inspirationists. Many, like the group in Zurich that we saw earlier, just didn't believe that the state should control what goes on in the church. They didn't believe that the people of God are a nation-state based on blood, like the Old Testament, but a gathered group of repentant sinners who profess faith in Christ, as in the New Testament. They believe that church membership should be voluntary and that the mark of entry is repentance and believers' baptism. Anabaptism was ceaselessly persecuted. Doctrinal precision was not always evident. And one can look back and fault the theology of many of them, but their strength was a great love for Christ and a great love for the church. Menno Simons of the Netherlands is remembered as the founder of the Mennonites, many of whom fled to America. Another leader, Jakob Hutter, from the Tyrol, gave his name to the Hutterites, Anabaptists who were successfully pushed by persecution further and further into Eastern Europe and then ultimately over to North America. And in the context of living on the run from persecutors, many of them shared their possessions And in time, they formalized the principle of communal life. And it wasn't just a matter of survival. There was an earnest desire to follow Christ's example and obey his teaching, however radical that seemed. I actually have with me here, this is a reprint of the first volume of an ancient Hutterite chronicle. Written in 1542, it was an account of the early generation of martyrs, and it contains 2,173 individual personal testimonies. Passed down secretly from generation to generation, it was recovered and printed in the 20th century. And these testimonies are some of the most moving and inspiring accounts of devotion to Christ that you will ever come across. Another collection of testimonies was first published in Holland in 1660, and the full title was The Bloody Theatre or Martyr's Mirror of the Defenceless Christians Who Baptised Only Upon Confession of Faith and who suffered and died for the testimony of Jesus their Saviour from the time of Christ to the year AD 60. It's actually available online, free, and I've given the link on the resource list. The use of the word defenceless in this case refers to the Anabaptist belief in non-resistance, and there are so many examples that one could give of that working out in practice. But the most famous example, possibly, is the example of Dirk Williams, In 1569, a Dutch Anabaptist, Dirk Williams, escaped from his home, 
but he was chased by officials. Coming to a frozen dike, he crossed safely, but his leading pursuer fell through the thin ice. And turning back, Dirk Williams saved his pursuer from certain drowning. Despite this, he was arrested and burned slowly at the stake. He has one more testimony recorded in the Martyr's Mirror, which tells of the faith of a young woman called Janneken Munstorp. Janneken was killed in Antwerp in 1573. While in prison awaiting execution, she gave birth to a baby girl. And she left a letter to be given to her daughter in later years. And she wrote, My dear little child, I commend you to God that he will keep you and let you grow up in his fear. You shall have no lack if only you fear God, for he will be the father of the orphans. My dear lamb, I who am imprisoned and bound here for the Lord's sake can help you in no other way. Your father and I were permitted to live together only half a year, after which we were apprehended because we sought out the salvation of our souls. They took him from me and killed him. I have borne you under my heart and with great sorrow for nine months and given birth to you here in prison in great pain. They have now taken you from me. And here I lie expecting death every morning and shall soon follow your dear father. My dear lamb who art yet very little and very young, I leave you this letter and this gold ring. I bid you adieu and kiss you with a perpetual kiss of peace. If you follow that which is good, you will receive the crown of eternal life. This crown I wish you, and the crucified, bleeding, naked, despised, rejected, and slain Christ for your bridegroom. We don't know what became of Yannickan's little baby girl, but I believe that testimony still speaks today, and it speaks not only of Yannickan's shining love for Jesus Christ, but it also speaks, doesn't it, of the horrible evil of religious persecution. What about the legacy of the radical reformers? Well, in terms of direct denominational descent, there are the Mennonites, the Amish, the Hutterites, the Mennonite Brethren, the Brethren Christ. In total, about 730,000 people in 57 countries with the largest numbers in North America, Zaire, Indonesia, and Russia. But in strictly denominational terms, we cannot draw a straight line between the radicals of the 16th century and, for example, the Baptists of today. The Baptist movement in England arose in the later 16th and 17th centuries from the Puritan movement, and the English Baptists always distanced themselves from the continental Anabaptists. One reason being that many of the English, particular Baptists, as they were called, were committed to reform beliefs with regard to divine sovereignty, for example, and that was in contrast to the rejection of Calvinist beliefs by some continental Anabaptists. So if you look at the 1689 Confession of Faith, Baptist Confession of Faith, it deliberately mirrored the Westminster Confession with the exceptions of believers' baptism and the fact that the magistrate in the Baptist view should not enforce religious orthodoxy. But, of course, Baptists accept the central and distinctive Anabaptist view that entry to the believers' church or gathered church follows on from believers' baptism. Worldwide, they form one of the largest denominations, but it's not only Baptists who accept those principles, is it? Many Pentecostals, many Charismatics would generally practice believers' baptism and with it the gathered church principle, as would many other evangelicals. But in terms of acceptance of the central Anabaptist vision of a church free of state control and with voluntary, not coerced membership, this notion 
so toxic, so despised in the 16th century is now completely mainstream. The radical reformers were way ahead of their time, and we can look back and only admire their courage in standing against all the forces of the establishment of their day on that point of principle. And then freedom of conscience. The conviction that church membership should be voluntary and not forced goes inseparably with a belief in freedom of conscience. The Anabaptists argue that God desires willing obedience. True faith cannot be coerced. And so today, whatever our genuinely held differing convictions may be about either establishment or baptism, and of course there are genuinely held differences of view on both those issues of establishment and baptism, we would all agree, whatever we think of that, that we don't think that people who disagree with us should be killed. The Anabaptists were way ahead of their time in arguing for religious freedom. And in subsequent years, it was their followers, at least in terms of belief, the early Baptists who continued to pioneer that radical notion of liberty of conscience. The first full defense of religious liberty in English was written by the Baptist Thomas Helwys in 1612. And he wrote a book called The Mystery of Iniquity, a treatise against religious persecution. And he then sent a personally inscribed copy to King James, writing, quote, If the king's people be obedient and true subjects, obeying all human laws made by the king, our lord the king can require nothing more. For men's religion to God is betwixt God and themselves. The king shall not answer for it. Neither may the king be judged between God and man. Well, James I was not impressed. He had Thomas Helwes imprisoned in Newgate Prison in vile conditions, and Thomas died there in 1616. The next landmark biblical defense of religious liberty was written in 1644 by the Baptist Roger Williams. Now, Williams had come to strong Puritan convictions while in Cambridge, studying Cambridge University, and in 1631, he sailed over to Massachusetts, and he argued that force never produces genuine faith, that forced worship is abominable to God, and that the magistrate has no place in coercing religion. He wrote, that cannot be a true religion which needs carnal weapons to uphold it. And he wrote, men's consciences ought in no sort to be violated, urged, or constrained. Now, of course, those ideas were anathema to the Puritan civil and religious authorities in Massachusetts. And so he was expelled from Massachusetts, and he purchased land on Rhode Island, where he founded a settlement which he called Providence, a haven for those with distress of conscience. This was the first colony which deliberately set out to practice separation of church and state and freedom of conscience and religion. And in 1644, Roger Williams wrote the classic work, The Bloody Tenors of Persecution, A Passionate Defense of Religious Liberty. And in response, the great Puritan preacher, and I have to say great Puritan preacher, in Boston, Massachusetts, John Cotton, defended religious coercion in a book entitled The Bloody Tenet washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb. But then in 1651, a cause celebre moved Roger Williams to write a further defense of religious liberty, the cause celebre being that of Obadiah Holmes. 
Holmes was a Puritan who had sailed to Massachusetts in 1638, and when later he came to Baptist convictions, he was expelled from Massachusetts and found refuge in Rhode Island. But in 1651, he made a visit to an elderly Baptist in Massachusetts and with some others held a little service in that person's home, and he was arrested. And during the court hearing in Boston, John Cotton stated that denying infant baptism would overturn all and was a capital offence and that those who did so were sole murderers. Obadiah was fined, but on principle refused to pay the fine and the magistrates then ordered that he should be whipped. And this is how the governor of Rhode Island described with horror what happened on August the 5th, 1651. Quote, Mr. Holmes was whipped 30 stripes and in such an unmerciful manner that for many days, if not weeks, he could take no rest, but as he lay upon his knees and elbows not being able to suffer any part of his body to touch the bed whereon he lay. While Puritans back in England were horrified, Oliver Cromwell took a personal interest in the case. Roger Williams was so incensed that he wrote a further work on religious liberty with the title, The Bloody Tenant Made Yet More Bloody by Mr. Cotton's Endeavour to Wash It White in the Blood of the Lamb. In reply, John Cotton defended the public whipping of Obadiah Holmes. He said it was better to make men hypocrites than to allow them to continue as profane persons. And as we look back on that bitter disagreement, surely we would all stand with Williams rather than Cotton. And today, when you visit the massive Reformation wall in Geneva, Switzerland, you will find a huge statue of Roger Williams right there alongside the central four of Calvin, Farrell, Baser, and Knox. Now... At this point, as in previous sessions, we're going to just break for a few minutes to gather thoughts and reflect, and then I'll take questions and then move on to the final point. There are actually three questions for you to think about on the second sheet of the handout, but today I'm going to suggest that you take those questions away if you want and think about them in your own time, because there are scripture references to look up. And I just feel that as we've been dealing with the theme of religious persecution, it would be appropriate this time rather to reflect and remember a moment, to give thanks for our own religious freedom, and to remember that there are many, many people in the world today who do not, suffer, who do not enjoy that religious freedom. And I'm moved to say that we should reflect on this for a couple of minutes, simply because on Sunday, while we were gathering on that lovely sunny morning for our wonderful first day together at Word Alive, bombs went off in two church services in Egypt, deliberately put there for Palm Sunday. An explosion in St. George's Church, Tanta, 60 miles north of Cairo, left at least 29 dead and 75 injured. And then a suicide bomber detonated a device outside St. Mark's Cathedral in Alexandria, killing 16 and injuring 33. That happened just this last Sunday while we were enjoying ministry here. So I suggest that we just take a couple of minutes, probably by ourselves, but maybe you'll want to say a prayer with a neighbor, And just give thanks for the freedom we have and maybe lift a prayer for those believers who've lost loved ones in Egypt, those who are terribly wounded, those who are grieving, and those who are frightened. So let's take a couple of minutes to give thanks and to pray for the persecuted church, and then we'll come back together for questions. Let's come back together now. I actually got that information from Release International. And for more prayer information on that, I suggest you visit the Release International stand. It's the most beautifully situated stand in the whole hub because it's bang opposite the coffee shop. When you go and get your coffee, you've got Release International right beside you. And they've got 
a limited offer at the moment. If you sign up to receive their regular prayer news, they will give you a free copy of this classic book by Richard Vermbrand called Tortured for Christ. Now, this is a must-read for every Christian. During the 1950s, Richard Vermbrand was horrifically tortured by the Romanian authorities because he would not deny his faith. I heard him speak in the 1980s in Canada, and it was one of the most moving experiences of my life. This is a wonderful book, and Release International are giving away free copies if you sign up for their prayer list. They're actually also giving you an alternative of a free teddy bear. So if you want a take-home gift for a child, you could always go for the teddy bear. Release International. And then as you leave at the back, you will be given this little briefing, Extremism Against Christians, which is a neat little summary of some of the places in the world where Christians are most persecuted today, as a reminder to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters. And if you don't get one of those, there are plenty more on the Christian Institute stand, which is right next to the Release International stand, opposite the coffee shop in the hub. But if you sign up to the Christian Institute mailing list, we don't give you either a free teddy bear or a free book. But if you sign up, you will get a free video lecture by Dr. Michael Reeves over the next few weeks on the English Reformation and the Puritans. And Mike Reeves' lectures are not to be missed. They're absolutely fantastic. So it might be worth signing up for that. Or you can visit our website. And then our last book recommendation for this series of lectures As you go through the hub, on your way to those stands and to the coffee shop, you go through the bookstall. And as you go through the bookstall, I'd love you to have a look at this book called Rescuing the Gospel by Erwin Lutzer, because this is a fantastic overview of the Reformation in a popular and accessible style. He treats everything that we've treated in these four sessions in an engaging way, and there are maps, and there are pictures, and there are photographs. And then at the back, he gives a fantastic chapter on this question. Is the Reformation over? Do we still need the Reformation today? Um, An extremely helpful chapter at the end. So that's that's a resource that I would highly recommend from the bookstore. There are plenty of copies there. Now, we can move into a time of questions. And before we take questions from the floor, I want to say thank you to those people who left questions at our stand Um, And I'm just going to deal with those questions first while you think of whether you've got a question that you want to come at me from the floor with. There was a question, can you recommend resources for exploring the teaching of the Orthodox Church on Reformation principles? Yes, I can. There is a fantastic book by a really good theologian called Robert Letham, L-E-T-H-A-M, Robert Letham, and it's called Through Western Eyes. And Bob Letham takes a look at the Eastern Orthodox Church in that book through Western eyes, and it's published by Christian Focus in 2010. I hope that helps you. And then there was a very good question. How are we best sharing the gospel or Reformation truth with Catholic friends, neighbors, colleagues? Well, firstly, a brief word about my own experience. I was a volunteer in Malawi um, between 1982 and 1984, and in a very remote rural area of Malawi where there were only Catholics. Um, I I was engaging with Catholics a lot. And I would just simply say that testifying to assurance of salvation in a very simple and direct and genuine way um, leads leads to good conversations. But to carry that further, on your resource list, um, there's a very, very helpful book by Chris Castaldo, who is himself a converted Catholic, 
and it's called Talking with Catholics About the Gospel. And that's a fantastic resource on sharing the gospel in an engaging way with Catholics. It's a great mistake to talk to Catholics in the 21st century as if we're still back in the 16th century. Things have changed an awful lot, of course. And Chris Castaldo gives good advice. Now, that's noted for you on the um, second page of the further resource sheet under the heading, Is the Reformation Over? If any of you have not received a copy of this handout, Further Resources, you could either wave your hand now and a steward will give you one, or you can grab one as you go out at the end. But if you want to get one now, the stewards will help you. And then another question. This was very helpful. Yesterday, I didn't actually comment on the practical application questions one and two. Um, We just moved swiftly on. And if you were here yesterday, the practical application question was firstly, how does the truth of divine sovereignty strengthen our faith and trust when we encounter personal challenges and tragedies. A horrendous tragedy hits us. It's absolutely no comfort at all to think at that moment, God is out of control. God is king. God is in control. He will work all things for his glory and for my good. It's the times when we're at the end of our resources and at the end of our tether, when those personal tragedies hit us, that we then lean hard on Christ. And it's at those times when we look back that we actually grow like Christ. And I think that the classic text for that time is Romans chapter 5, where we're told we can rejoice in suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. Hope does not disappoint us. And it's at those times, many of us will testify that God pours out his love in an extraordinary way into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that he has given us. God is in control. That is a comfort when we have those times of personal tragedy. And then the second question yesterday that I didn't comment on, how does the truth of divine sovereignty strengthen our faith and trust when we witness tragedies on a national or international scale? Again, big scale. It's of no comfort whatever if we think God is out of control. God is king. God is in control. Just read Revelation. Revelation is a grossly underread, underrated book. Read Revelation. God is in control. Very often, judgments are designed to lead nations, peoples to repentance. Christ is king of kings and lord of lords. That's the theme all the way through. Memorize Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Christ is king. He has established his king on Zion, his holy hill. Memorize Psalm 46. I remember the day that the 9-11, when the Twin Towers collapsed, and I was sat with our two children, and we recited Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, our ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. God is in control. And that gives us comfort at times of national and international crisis. And the end of that psalm says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Whatever happens nationally, internationally, God will be exalted in the earth. So that was those two questions which I didn't comment on yesterday. Um, And then there was a question coming in which said, 
why did God create the earth for his glory? And then this person um, quotes C.S. Lewis, who says, that which isn't sufficient in itself creates what it does not need, knowing that at the moment of creation, the crucifixion is inevitable because it reveals the nature of agape. Any comment? Yeah, great. Amen. The, whole, the lamb was slain before the foundation of the earth. Uh, and those truths of divine sovereignty are there. As Calvin said, the whole epic of creation, fall, salvation, redemption, human history is to glorify God. And we glorify God when we recognize that he is a self-giving God. And that self-giving is expressed beautifully, so beautifully, at Calvary. So those were the four questions that um, came in, and thank you for those. But are there, there's time very briefly for maybe two or three from the floor now. Hello. Um, first of all, thanks so much for these lectures. Sorry, I can't see who you are. Hello, yeah, okay, I'm here. Good, good. Um, these have been epic, so thank you so much. Um, my question would be, when and why did people stop killing Anabaptists? As in, I think it's a good thing, but like, <laughs> at, at what point did they become okay and they stopped doing that? Very good question. When and why did people stop killing the Baptists? In the Holy Roman Empire, it went on into the 18th century and forced baptisms went on into the 19th century. In England, I believe, and this is off the top of my head so I could be wrong and you could easily Google it, I think that the last Baptist was killed in 1612. Um, That's in terms of killing. In terms of unacceptability of belief, Believer's baptism was unacceptable in mainstream circles for quite a while after that. One of my favorite devotional commentators is Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry almost believed that Baptists should be executed, although he wouldn't have actually executed them. He was so horrified by the idea of not baptizing infants. Um, So there's been such a huge shift that believers' baptism is now completely accepted as okay and even mainstream in evangelicalism, whereas even a relatively short time ago, it was regarded as utter anathema. So the killing in England stopped about 1612, but unacceptability went on quite a lot longer. Was there a question down here or in the middle? Thanks. Um, So when you were talking about sort of the persecution of the Baptists, um, you were saying that it was largely in response to their views on baptism and their views on freedom of conscience. Um, And given the sort of vitriol with which the reformers talked about them, I was wondering, was it purely those things or was there other stuff they were teaching that was also anathema to the reformers? This is a question about why, it's picking up on why were the reformers so opposed to the Anabaptists? Was it just baptism? The major point was fear for the stability of society. The major fear was anarchy. The major fear was the breakdown of law and order. And the assumption through the Middle Ages was that everybody in a state had to belong to the same viewpoint. Um, Charles Taylor deals with this in his massive book, A Secular Age. Just the assumption that that we now have the mindset and the assumption that people are free to choose their own belief. That was not even dreamed of. That was just, that was an alien concept. The assumption was stability happened when everybody all believed the same. And so the Anabaptists were just 
so out of kilter with the mindset of their time that it just appeared that like the earth would fall in if, if they were allowed to, to win the day. And they were gaining adherence quite quickly. And then, as I explained, there was such a variety of views that were all collectively thrown into the bucket, labelled Anabaptists, that, of course, the reformers feared anti-Trinitarianism, other heresies. And there were a lo whole load of other more complex doctrinal divisions, diversions, and disagreements, which I didn't have time to go into. But there was that collective fear of things getting out of control. And so the idea... I mean, Luther, to begin with, hated the idea of killing Anabaptists. He really did. He was a, I mean, Luther is a very, very attractive personality and attractive man, and, and he was moved by it, but he eventually got to the point where he thought this is necessary. Um, so I, so I, really, I, re, I really think that if we were all put back into the... 16th century, the likelihood is that most of us would have breathed the air that everyone else was breathing, and we would have breathed that air that said everybody has to believe the same thing. And we can't go back with our 21st century assumptions about individual freedom to believe what we want and judge Luther and Calvin by our 21st century assumptions, all right? So I've really tried to, 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 to show that Luther, Calvin, Zwingli were great men of God, we thank God for them, we learn from them, we are grateful for them, but they were people of their time, as we might well have been if we had been back at that time. But extraordinarily, some people were actually given the courage and the light to begin breaking free from that earlier than everybody else, and they paid a very, very heavy price for that. But now when we look back on them, whatever we may think about baptism or whatever we may think about establishment, we would say, actually, on this point, freedom of conscience... Those people were right, and we're grateful for that. So what about today, Reformation today? Does this whole question of Reformation belong to past history? As I said in the first session, many would claim that the Reformation represents a monumental tragedy, a schism in the church, which we should mend. But we saw in session one that the fundamental position of the Roman Catholic Church with regard to authority has not changed. And I believe that we have to stand with the reformers on the supreme authority of the Word of God. The Word of God is living and active. It's inspired from beginning to end by the Holy Spirit. How dare we add to it? And we saw in session two that the fundamental position of the Roman Catholic Church with regard to salvation has not changed either. The Bible teaches that Christ's perfect work of salvation is complete. It's finished. How dare we add to that? Now, of course, individual Catholics can and do experience God's grace if they repent and trust in Christ alone. But that doesn't mean that we should join up uncritically with the institutional Roman Catholic Church. Now, of course, we should work alongside Roman Catholics on matters of common concern, maybe religious freedom, some ethical issues, but that doesn't mean that it's appropriate to engage in joint gospel mission. If you want to explore those issues further, on the resource sheet, I give the link to three important websites which engage thoughtfully with the current situation within the Catholic Church, and I commented on those websites in the first session. Now, why is this so important? Well, it's important because our eternal salvation depends on the answer to the question, how can I be right with God? 
And the biblical answer is that I am saved by grace alone. My salvation is secured through the perfect work of Christ alone, received by faith alone. And this biblical view of salvation gives God all the praise, solely Deo Gloria, and that is what the Reformation was all about, rediscovering the gospel and giving all glory to God. Let's close in prayer together. Almighty God, we do worship you for the wonder of your perfect plan of redemption. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for the gift you give us of his perfect righteousness. And we thank you that we've been able to explore these themes, but we recognize, Lord, that we have freedom to explore these themes. And again, we would simply lift our hearts and pray for those of our brothers and sisters who today could only dream of meeting together like this. And we do pray particularly for those who've been affected by those atrocities in Egypt, that you would bring divine comfort. We pray that you would enter into that situation and bring glory to your name from it. And as we leave now, we pray that you would give us that passion for your glory that would enable us to live for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This talk was recorded at Word Alive 2017. Word Alive is here to serve the church in reaching the world. Our desire is to resource individuals and churches and empower them in their mission to communities and the wider world. For further information and to hear more talks from this and previous events, please visit our website at wordaliveevent.org.